Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Sanj, who while at university studying to become a doctor, started experiencing symptoms of heart failure. For 10 years, she managed well until at the age of 29, her condition deteriorated rapidly. Evening was just another normal evening and then I went to bed and my symptoms just came on so suddenly. Within an hour, I couldn't breathe up to the point where I was gasping for air, couldn't speak. And I think I was coughing more than I myself have ever seen any patient cough. So I was seen immediately in A&E by a senior doctor. And I guess that was the start of my transplant journey. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Yana Theodoru. And on the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Sanj, a doctor turned patient, talks about coming to terms with the severity of her condition, the emotional roller coaster of waiting for a heart transplant, and how the support from her friends and family and the extraordinary kindness of healthcare staff kept her going at times when she felt like giving up. Join us as Sanj discusses the unexpected challenges of life post heart transplant and the joy of looking ahead to a brighter future. Sanj, thank you so much for being here today on the Ticker Tapes. Your story is quite intricate and spans many years. So to start us off, why don't you tell us what made you want to share your story with us? Well, thanks for having me on today. Um, So I think for me, firstly, it was all about raising awareness about cardiomyopathy and heart failure in young people, Mm -hmm. especially because people often associate heart disease with poor lifestyle choices and older age, and that's not always the case. And I guess secondly, yeah. for me, my journey has been quite isolating at times. And I've often wished that I had someone my age who understood what I was going through. So I really hope I can be that person for someone else out there who might be going through something similar. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thank you. And why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? So I'm 29 years old. I grew up in Newcastle and from a young age, always wanted to be a doctor. And I was offered mm-hmm. a place to study medicine at the University of Liverpool and graduated what seems like forever ago um, back in 2017. And now I'm in my final year of training to become a general practitioner in Liverpool. So I guess if you saw me, you'd think I look quite well and like any other person in their late 20s. And Mm. my heart condition wouldn't be obvious unless you knew me. So back until October last year, I was still able to go on walks, holidays, Mm. and enjoyed hobbies like bouldering or yoga and kept myself as fit as I could within my limitations mm-hmm. and up until the day I got admitted to hospital um, I was still working full-time as a doctor in the NHS. And um, can you take us back to the moment you first started experiencing symptoms with your with your heart? Yeah so I think it was back in my third year of uni um, so it's probably about 10 years ago now um, so it's been a bit of a slow burner. I was 20 at the time and had started to find little things were getting suddenly a lot more difficult Mm -hmm. like walking up the stairs I would get out of breath or felt like I was having palpitations doing the most basic things Mm. and at the time I remember not thinking much of it really um because again I thought I'm young and healthy so I guess thinking about something being wrong with my heart was probably the furthest thing from my mind um Mm -hmm. but like every terrible medical student <laughs> I tried to self-diagnose myself of and course. <laughs> thought I thought I'd try and put the pieces of the jigsaw together and having had childhood asthma I thought oh it's probably that sat on it for a right. while 
but then things were starting to get worse. Um, so I did book an appointment with my um, GP and got seen by one of the nurses for an asthma check. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I just mentioned, I think really casually, that I was getting palpitations. Um, so she arranged a tracing of my heart um, whilst I was in Liverpool, which I think apparently looked grossly abnormal, um, is what I remember hearing. And mm. I think it really just kicked off from there. So after that, I think maybe a week later, I went up to Newcastle and things just happened really quickly after that. I remember being really confused at the time because it was just all sudden and new and I'd gone from yeah. being absolutely fine to, oh, there might be something wrong with your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got admitted to a hospital in Newcastle for some tests. And initially they thought I had an infection of the heart, um, which they call myocarditis. And then they thought I had something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I remember one consultant suggesting a very rare condition. um, Mm. It's called cardiac sarcoidosis. And he said that because of the amount of damage and the amount of scarring to my heart. Mm. Um, But we still weren't really sure what was going on. And I'd had so many blood tests. I'd had specialized tests like MRI scans and PET scans to look for a cause of my heart condition and the hospital in Newcastle then decided the best thing to do would be to send me down to London um, for a heart biopsy because they couldn't find anything that was causing the damage to my heart. So then I went down to London, had the heart biopsy, um, which wasn't the most pleasant thing in itself, but that was the first time I'd ever had a heart biopsy. So it was, it was new and it was scary. And Mm. I was, I think 21 at the time. So um it was it was quite a daunting experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um I just remember the food in the hospital being really good (laughs) (laughs) really that's not what you often hear (laughs) but the the hospital in London the food was really tasty I remember that um Uh but after I had the heart biopsy they found something completely different called mitochondrial disease in the cells of the heart and that's been my working diagnosis ever since and so what was your heart function at the time? So it gradually got worse over the 10-year period. So initially it was about, I think, 35%. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a normal heart function is between 55 and 60. So it wasn't terrible when things first started. But then I was having some short runs of quite dangerous heart rhythms um, called right. ventricular tachycardia. Yeah. So within a year of me having a diagnosis of a heart condition they then inserted an ICD which is basically similar to a pacemaker Mm -hmm. and then since then my heart function has slowly been getting worse about every six months it drops by a couple of percent Mm -hmm. um so for the last two years or so it's been hovering around the 12 percent mark um which is really low I'm surprised I was able to keep going as long as I did um with that heart function so your heart function is at 12%, but you were compensating somehow. Yeah. What What were your friends and family thinking at this time? Were they concerned? I don't really like people worrying about me. Um, so I didn't actually tell a lot of people how bad things ah. were. Um, and the people I did tell, I would play it down to. So for example, at work, I would only tell the relevant people who needed to know um, and occupational health to make sure that I could continue to do my job safely. But mm. then as I would get more comfortable working with some of my colleagues, I would tell them later down the line and I would often shock them with how well I was functioning despite such a poor heart function. 
Um, and I guess it was similar with my friends. Um, I'm quite competitive as a person, so I never wanted to look like I was struggling or couldn't keep up with them. Yeah. And I think the only people who really knew how bad things were were my parents and my partner, Paul, probably mm. because they saw me the most, so could tell when I was struggling. And they would obviously worry, but again, I didn't want them to. So I would try and reassure mm-hmm. them, tell them everything was okay because I hated seeing them so concerned. Um, yeah. But I think I knew things were starting to get worse, just didn't realize how bad things were actually getting. Right. And so how how was it manifesting? Like what symptoms were you experiencing as your heart function was reducing? Despite having a heart function of 12%, I was managing okay. I think mostly because I was determined to kind of continue the life that I wanted to have without a heart condition. Um, Mm. But looking back in hindsight now, I think things were a lot worse than I thought and was possibly in denial. So Mm. I think I refused to acknowledge how bad things had really got. So I was getting more tired after a day working. I'd have to go Mm. lie down and rest in the evenings. So I was okay for the next day. And again, it was the same at weekends. Sundays would often just be rest days for me. So I wouldn't be exhausted for the week ahead. Um, and then towards the end when things were starting to get really bad little things started to change which again I didn't notice at the time but looking back now I don't know how I didn't see it coming Um, so I wouldn't have the energy to cook dinner in the evening or socialize and I used to love walking so instead of walking short distances I would drive everywhere um, because even walking a few minutes would set off the breathlessness the chest pains the palpitations all of it the worst symptom that towards the end I was getting was the chest pain. Um, and we never really found out why I was getting chest pain, but I think probably what was happening was my heart was just so weak and so damaged. Mm. It just wasn't getting the blood supply it should have. So Mm. the type of pain I was getting was probably similar to the type of pain you would get if you were experiencing a heart attack, but I was having that every day. And in my case, there was no treatment for it. So it was just one of those things that I had to get used to. Mm -hmm. But it was getting more and more difficult um, and more and more painful Mm. towards the end. And I think that was when I started to think maybe my heart's starting to give up a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. So when did you sort of take actions to, you know, seek help? This isn't right I shouldn't be living like this when did you you start to realize that um probably didn't seek help um early enough um so I I get quite regular follow-up with um my team in Newcastle Mm -hmm. um so March last year I had my first transplant assessment um and I knew heart transplant was something that I would need further down the line I just didn't think it would be something I would need as soon as I did end up needing So I had that first assessment and at the time I was too well to be put on the transplant list. And then last October, I suddenly got really sick and Mm -hmm. um, things deteriorated really quickly. So I'd been quite busy with some house DIY projects. Um, Work was going quite well at the time. I was quite busy. Um, I was working in a GP practice doing my placement and I'd just come back from holiday in Lisbon. Mm-hmm. where I'd gone to see one of my friends do an Ironman and I didn't think I'd be the person needing medical assistance <laughs> assistance after that but there you go um so I got back went into work on the Tuesday and felt fine that day evening was just another normal evening and then I went to bed and 
my symptoms just came on so suddenly. Mm. Within an hour, I couldn't breathe up to the point where I was gasping for air, couldn't speak. And I think I was coughing more than I myself have ever seen any patient cough. Oh, really? So I was seen immediately in A&E by a senior doctor. And I guess that was the start of my transplant journey. And so what happened next? What did they say? What did they think it was? So when I was first admitted to my local hospital, um, they thought I had a chest infection. Um, so they treated me with some, with some antibiotics for a chest infection. Mm. Um, and I guess they might not have realized how sick I was, um, again, because I'm young mm. and the signs of heart failure aren't that obvious in a young person yeah. as they might be in someone who's a bit older. Um, so I didn't have some of the common signs, I guess, like swelling in my legs. Um, my oxygen mm-hmm. levels were bad, but they weren't as bad as what you would probably expect for someone um, with heart failure. So I think that might have confused them a little bit. Initially, I spent a week in my local hospital. So they were treating me for a chest infection. Probably didn't think I was someone who I don't think transplant was even on the cards for them. Um, mm-hmm. And whilst I was there, I really deteriorated to the point where all my organs were shutting down um I'd become quite confused I'd become quite weak Mm. um my lungs and my body were just so full of fluid because my heart couldn't pump as well as it should have been Mm. um so whilst I was there Paul my partner and my friends would come and visit me every day and Mm. I think it must have been really hard for them to see me Mm. going from being absolutely fine to then suddenly critically unwell Mm. I had told my parents that I was in hospital but yeah I hadn't really explained how unwell I was because I don't think I actually realized myself how sick I was. Um, And I think if they knew how bad things were, they would have driven me, driven straight to Liverpool, picked me up and taken me in a car and taken me straight back up to Newcastle. Um, So when they did finally see me, I think it was, it was quite a shock for them as well. Yeah. Um, So they're probably thinking, why didn't you tell us properly? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly what my mum said. <laughs> oh, um, so after a week being in in that hospital in Liverpool, I got transferred in a blue light ambulance straight up to the intensive care unit in Newcastle. Yeah, and that's where the transplant centre is in Newcastle. Um, mm-hmm. My cardiology specialist is based there, um, so I was listed for a heart transplant quite urgently. And initially, I was so critically unwell. I think they told my family I probably had days to weeks to live. And they wanted to put me on the super urgent list. But the intensive care unit there was incredible. Honestly, they could not have treated me any better. And I think Mm. only because of the care I had there, I went from being so sick that I needed to be on the super urgent list, where I probably had days to weeks to live, to then being put on the urgent list where you have a bit more time and you can wait months for a heart transplant. Mm -hmm. And on average, those people are waiting three to four months in hospital on the urgent transplant list again I wasn't prepared um for living in hospital because I'd been Mm -hmm. fine and then suddenly the hospital's my new home um I hadn't had a chance to pack hadn't had a chance to source out my stuff at work hadn't had a chance to say goodbye I guess to a lot of people um yeah and living in hospital was really tough for me because Mm -hmm. normally I'm quite busy I'm quite active and I like to Mm -hmm. do things on my own time and then suddenly I was attached to drips I had lines coming out of my arms my neck and I just lost all my independence um mm. I wasn't allowed to shower without my drip stand needed help getting dressed um and I couldn't leave the ward or 
eat or drink things that I wanted to. Um, yeah. So I just couldn't really do much on my own, which was, I think, really difficult for me to get used to. Yeah, um, I can imagine. But the things that got me through um, at the time, after I got a bit better from being in intensive care, was my family would come and visit me every day in hospital. Um, mm-hmm. The hospital food here wasn't great. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, so my dad would cook me all sorts of food um, so I didn't have to eat hospital food. Um, mm-hmm. My sister came home from London and spent some time with me and Paul, my partner, and my friends. They actually set up a WhatsApp group um, to arrange a rosa oh, for people to come them. and visit me in hospital Yeah, um, because they knew I was going to be there for months. Um, and that honestly helped so much um Mm -hmm. i would literally have friends coming from the other side of the country just to spend a couple of hours with me during visiting hours um and we would do things to try and make the days feel better and to try and distract me from being in hospital so we would do little spa days we'd play games (laughs) and just you know talking about normal stuff and not talking Mm. about being ill all the time yeah i'm sure that was that was so valuable to you at that time yeah it just lifted my mood and gave me something to be excited for so even Mm. if it was just once a week people were coming to see me it would be my treat for the week um so I'd try and get myself ready and the nurses would try and help me look my best for when I had visitors so um yeah that that was really helpful and I'm still so grateful to all those people who helped me with that at the time sounds like you got some really lovely friends and family yeah yeah (laughs) And what was it like sort of on the ward with all the other patients? Because you're all in this critical condition, aren't you, waiting for a heart. So that must have felt quite strange. Yeah. Um, so initially the in ITU, I was in my own cubicle. Um, mm-hmm. So didn't really interact with the other patients there. And then I moved down to the coronary care unit for a week. And again, I was in my own cubicle. And there were some pros to being in your own cubicle. You get a bit more privacy. Um mm-hmm. I could have people coming and going more frequently and got to do a few more of the fun things that I mentioned um, because I had a little bit more leniency with visiting hours. And then the ward that I moved to after that was the transplant ward. And initially I wasn't keen to go on that ward um, because they're really strict because a lot of the patients are so poorly there. You're not allowed to have that many visitors. You're only allowed a few named visitors. So initially that really didn't appealed to me because the thing that was getting me through was seeing my family and friends all the time mm-hmm. um but actually that ward was amazing yeah. it was such a it didn't feel like a ward like I've worked on many mm. wards over my years working as a doctor and this ward just felt really special um the nurses were amazing they were just so involved and mm-hmm. you knew that they really cared about you Um, And they really got to know you. And again, with the patients, because we were all in the same boat and we were all waiting together, it felt more like a community. Mm. So we all supported each other. We all, you know, comforted each other if we were having bad days. Um, So I think, although I wasn't keen to go on the ward initially, I Mm. would not have gone anywhere else. Um, And I'm really, really glad that. I ended up on that ward because I've made some friends for life with some of the patients. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and even the nurses. I still keep in touch with some of those nurses. Wow. Yeah, that feels so like powerful to be in that with, the, with everybody together. 
and and when did the when did the offer of the heart come through how long were you on that ward for so I actually got my first offer after being on the transplant list for about a week and I remember being woken up at I think it was about four o'clock in the morning um and being told that they'd found a match for me and when they wake you up they wake you up because they have to do all these tests on you and start doing bloods and whatnot so I had that from four o'clock in the morning um and through the day I just remember thinking this is too good to be true um Mm. this this can't I can't be that lucky that this will happen so quickly for me because I prepared to be there for months and a week into being on the list I just didn't think it was possible that yeah I could get the heart so quickly but then people come and prepare you for the surgery so the surgeons would come in they would tell me about the surgery then other doctors came in and told me about the process of putting me to sleep what that would involve mm-hmm. and then I had to stay fasting to go to theatre had to get washed ready gowned up when the heart arrived so then mm-hmm. I started to really believe that it might be going ahead um, mm. and I think halfway through the day I was starting to get hopeful yeah and I think I waited about 16 hours with my parents and after 16 hours or so got told that it was a false alarm and Mm. the donor heart had deteriorated in that time and wasn't good enough to use how did that feel hearing that really tough um I kind of knew it at the start of the day but then as you become more hopeful you think okay right this this might actually happen for me um, and it was just, it was exhausting because I hadn't eaten, hadn't drink, drank anything. Mm. Um, my parents were exhausted and I think I had to really dig deep to get over that. And I knew that on average people wait three to four times. They have about on average four false alarms. Um, wow. With, I didn't realize it was that many. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't until I, I went to hospital Yeah, and I just remember thinking, I don't know how I can do that again. <laughs> Um, yeah I, it was just such a tough day I just and it was such a long wait I just thought oh god mm. I can't do that another three times and like the emotional like it's emotionally draining isn't it as well as physically draining yeah you, it was more it was more emotionally up. draining because you just sat around um you can't do it you can't go anywhere you can't distract yourself and I remember I think I watched three or four films that day and mm. I wasn't really watching them um and we were all just sat in silence so it was a it was a really miserable day. Mm-hmm. Um, I got over it, um, mm-hmm. but it was it was hard. And I know a lot of people have waited a lot longer than I ended up waiting. Um, and I just don't know how people manage to find that inner strength to do that, because for me it was it was really difficult. The BHF's life saving research is giving hope to so many people. If you would like to support our work, please consider a donation by going to bhf.org.uk forward slash donate pod. So then after being in hospital for about six weeks, I was really struggling physically. I was struggling to mm-hmm. get out of bed, um, couldn't walk more than a few yards. And I'd lost about two stone by this point. Oh, gosh. I was vomiting everything I ate. Um, I was on multiple drips by this point. And I think my family were just exhausted. Um I was feeling a lot weaker um, so I said look I can't have any more friends coming to visit and that mm-hmm. really affected my mood um, wow. so I felt yeah. quite low in myself um, and I could see by then that my parents were really starting to get worried as was Paul and I just really wanted to keep going for them mm-hmm. but I think I, I knew I was running out of steam by this point so yeah. 
that Sunday night was particularly bad. Um, and I think my mum knew that I was starting to give up. Um, so she'd asked to stay in hospital with me overnight, but wasn't allowed to do so. And then again, early hours of Monday, I was awake, struggling to breathe. And similarly to last time, it was about 4 a.m. Um, mm-hmm. My nurse sat down at the end of my bed and told me that we had another offer for a heart. And this time said, we think it's a good one. And I was just so exhausted at the time. I just couldn't deal with the thought of another false alarm. So yeah. half jokingly, I told him to go away and that I didn't want it. <laughs> um, I'm so glad he ignored me because the next day I then got my heart. Wow. And to, to be in that position where you're just so drained to actually be like, no, I don't want it. That's, God, I can't even imagine how that must have felt. I definitely didn't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just I was just so emotionally and physically drained by that point. I just thought I can't go through that whole process again and yeah. have bad news at the end of the day because by that point I was really struggling to dig deep mm. and I really didn't think I had a lot left mentally to deal with another false alarm. Yeah. And where did things go from there? So the offer of the the second offer of the heart comes through. How quickly did things move from then? So again, it was another long 16 hour wait. Um, but this time everyone else seemed a lot more excited. So there was a lot more buzz on the ward. My family felt more positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all with me again the whole day until nine o'clock that night. And I was trying not to get my hopes up this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might have said that I was quite grumpy that day. <laughs> um, but at nine o'clock that night, my transplant coordinator, she came into my room and told me that we were all good to go. I think I just sobbed for what felt like forever. Um, mm. I was just so full of emotion. Yeah. And I was just so happy that this torment was coming to an end. And after that, I just, I remember I just put on my game face and I was just so ready for theater and so ready for the surgery. And it's a big surgery. It's quite yeah. a scary surgery. And I just don't remember being scared. Um, I was just really determined that I was going in, things were going to be better and mm-hmm. I was going to come out and be a lot better than I was before. Start the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I really, uh, I think I, if I could have skipped out of there, I would have skipped out of there. <laughs> um but then I woke up the next day um which I think was only maybe eight hours after the surgery which Mm -hmm. was quite quick just ready to get started (laughs) just get my eight hours sleep and ready to go um but I woke up to my parents at my bedside um again I was on ITU and it's all a bit hazy um but I just remember I think I just grinned for about an hour I couldn't really speak couldn't do much um but I just kept giving them the thumbs up Um, because I was really excited and really happy and Mm. I just remember thinking yes I've done it like this this is now going to to be better so after that I spent another three weeks in hospital recovering um yeah how was your recovery process because obviously it's a very major surgery so in hospital things felt a bit better than I thought they would in terms of recovery I thought it was going to be more difficult recovery I did have to learn how to walk again which Mm. um was quite strange but because I'd become so weak um Mm. and I was almost bed bound for nearly three months I found walking quite difficult to start off with so Mm -hmm. with the physiotherapists learn how to rewalk learn how to do stairs again um so that was a challenge um and then obviously there was pain 
that came with having open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. But weirdly, it wasn't as painful as I thought it would be. Um, mm-hmm. I think maybe they just put me on really good drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and I think part of it was I was just so happy. I think I was just riding this high of joy. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the things that I might have found uncomfortable before, I just didn't care because mm. I could see that there was an end in sight. Um, so all the painful procedures that I'd had before, they didn't seem as painful this time because yeah. I knew that an end of end was coming to all of this. Yeah. So that made it a lot better. So I only spent maybe three weeks in hospital recovering wow. after the surgery um, and then left the hospital grounds about three months after being admitted um left on christmas eve and woke up for the first time in my own bed on christmas morning which was oh, pretty that special sounds wonderful yeah it was it, i think i probably got the best christmas present anyone could have got oh. um so that was really nice and how was how was the recovery process at home because obviously you don't have the safety net of the hospital anymore you're sort of um how, how was that yeah it was um it was strange leaving hospital because one part of me was so desperate to leave and then the other part of you becomes institutionalized and you don't want to leave that safety net um mm-hmm. so it's quite emotional actually leaving the hospital mm-hmm. um and you get to know the patients you get to know the staff yeah, of course. um you, you do really think you, you're gonna miss them um and i do still miss a lot of the people on the ward um mm-hmm. and the recovery at home was probably harder than i anticipated um mm-hmm. a lot of the drugs that you get started on to prevent the rejection of the new heart they're quite potent and mm-hmm. some of them have got weird and wonderful side effects like what so for example one of the drugs causes weight gain and mm-hmm. swelling of the face um which i really struggled with um and then one of the other drugs caused me to grow hair literally all over my body <laughs> which i really struggled with oh my gosh i think if i was a man i would have been absolutely buzzing to have all this new hair lovely bit. As, a, <laughs> yeah, as a young woman um I really struggled psychologically with some of the physical changes especially the hair growth yeah and the thing that I thought I would really not like or would bother me was the scar itself um mm. which I only recently found is called your zipper um oh, so people call it people call it their zipper but Strangely, I feel quite proud when I look at it, um, and I do actually love my scar. I think it, yeah, it kind of reminds me of all the stuff that I've gone through. Yeah, um, how so strong that, you are. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, I feel quite proud when I look at that. But some of the other side effects, they've got better in time. But mm. I was quite impatient, and I wanted them to go straight away, and I just wanted to be my old self again straight yeah. away, and didn't really anticipate that. Well, of course, you want to, you've got the new heart and you want to go out and live your life. But if you're struggling with, you know, hair growth and stuff like that, it that's a, it's a catch-22, isn't it? Yeah. How, how did you overcome that? How did you deal with the side effects you were experiencing? I remember feeling quite guilty for, for being bothered by those side effects because I thought, here, I've been given this amazing opportunity. I've got this new heart. Mm. Why Why are these things bothering me? So that took a lot of mental work to try and remind myself that without those side effects, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. You know, these things are temporary and Mm. they're not there forever. And some of those things I think I noticed more than other people would notice. Mm. 
and things like the hair growth you know I was spending half an hour 40 minutes each morning just shaving my face um yeah and I think if that medication hadn't been changed to another medication I probably still would be struggling psychologically Mm. with that and I think I've just now accepted that it's okay to be bothered by these things yeah absolutely they're normal things anyone else would be bothered by those things as well so and you don't have to not be bothered by it just because you you know received this heart transplant it's it's yeah it's a different area isn't it yeah exactly it's um it's a different different thing that you're upset about and worried about and in some ways it's nice to feel bothered by cosmetic things and you feel like you know you're almost getting back to some normality when mm. those things start bothering you again um so they they have got better since i have changed medication and mm-hmm. the other medication that causes the fluid and the face swelling that's slowly coming down so i think i just need to be a bit more patient um and just remind myself that i'm on these medications for a reason mm-hmm. um, it's not just for fun <laughs> yeah and like sort of physically getting back to like walking and things like that how 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 was your recovery and how long did it take so i was definitely guilty of trying to run before i could walk um <laughs> quite literally i think about 3 months <laughs> in i tried going for a run um and realized that it was probably too soon um, yeah. but i was really determined at the start to to try and get back to a good fitness level um so i was walking every day um when I first left hospital partly because I was living at home with my parents and there was not a lot else to do so uh, <laughs> my um my my daily walks were quite useful um yeah so it started off with walking um and then slowly my fitness has got a lot better um so now I have joined a gym which I haven't done for many years amazing um, and I've got a personal trainer so I'm trying to do low intensity exercises so things Mm. like cycling things like um hiking and i've just started weights so these things i've you know just craved for so many years Mm -hmm. and only just have been able to start to do them um running is one of my big goals which i haven't quite got to yet Mm -hmm. and sometimes that's a bit frustrating um because i want to be running um but i'm only now what six months post transplant yeah it's really not that long ago no um and I've tried running and it's not as fun as I thought it was <laughs> <laughs> I tend to agree with you <laughs> yeah. but it's still one of those things I, I want to be able to do and mm-hmm. I, I think my my ultimate goal is to try and do a half marathon um at some point and then I'll be happy yeah oh no that would be incredible to 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 get to that day and actually do it that would be but not before you're ready <laughs> yeah. yeah um that's I mean it's really incredible how far you've come in such a short period of time and you know it's a truly incredible gift that you've been given so I just want to know like how does it feel to have that heart you know somebody else's heart beating in your chest I think I'm just so grateful um to my donor and their family um for me especially waiting for that precious heart was such a weird feeling in hospital because essentially you're waiting for someone else to die um mm. which is a really horrible thought but so much worse when your day-to-day job is to save people and to keep mm. them alive and i struggled to deal with that for a while 
um, and felt really guilty having those thoughts. Mm -hmm. And for me, I thought the worse my experience was pre-transplant, the more deserving I was for that heart. Mm. That's a, an interesting perspective. Yeah, probably not the best way of thinking about it. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, I felt like I had to do my time in order to get the heart. Mm -hmm. Since having the transplant, my mindset's changed a little bit. And I think now when I think about my donor, and I think about my donor quite often, you know, I'll just be doing something little and think, God, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to do this if my donor hadn't given me their heart. Um, and all I can try and do now is do right by my donor and try and keep my heart as healthy and happy as I can for as long mm -hmm. as I can and do things that scare me like coming on this podcast for example <laughs> yeah no of course you take those chances when you're given them yeah and also I have another question because obviously as a doctor and a transplant patient you have this unique perspective on the healthcare system yeah um so how is your personal experience shaped your professional approach and like the way that you interact with patients or or other healthcare professionals I mean I hope I'm more empathetic um as a doctor now after experiencing what I've gone through um mm -hmm. and having probably almost every procedure and investigation under the sun I think I can yeah. explain most of those tests with my eyes closed um to patients but I think one thing as a patient you feel is like you often lose your independence and mm -hmm. lose your dignity at times and have these embarrassing moments that you think no one else will understand. Mm -hmm. And going through those experiences myself, I think I acknowledge that side of things better than I think some other doctors might be able to. And obviously the medical treatment and the skills of the doctors and the surgeons who say ultimately save your life mm -hmm. um, are really important but there's so many other aspects to the patient journey that you don't consider until mm -hmm. you've gone through it yourself um so i remember after my surgery one of the things i felt really nervous about was having a shower mm -hmm. because i had all these dressings covering big wounds mm -hmm. and i remember the nursing staff and the healthcare assistants you know helping me get washed helping me get dressed um one of them washed my hair for me and Mm. gave me a blow dry and that was mm -hmm. the first time I'd had a blow dry in three months and I felt human again I felt yeah. I felt normal and it's those things that you don't think about which actually yeah. really make a massive difference to you as a patient so I guess I probably have a greater appreciation for the staff that I work with mm -hmm. and all of the staff that I work with because from the cleaners that would come in in the morning and sneak me in an apple juice because the mm. new apple juice was my favorite juice mm. to the nurses, you know, bringing me heat patches when I had pain in my chest after the surgery. Those are the things that you remember as a patient. And those are the things that you actually really look back fondly on. Mm. And they're the things that at the time keep you going when you feel quite low and down in yourself. Mm. Um, so I think that's, that's something that I've really taken away that, you know, everyone who works in the NHS has a massive role to play and things that you don't think will make a difference to patients sometimes are the things that make the biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. And 
Are you still not certain about what caused the heart failure? So, because I know you've donated your heart to research now to do more testing. Have they come to any sort of definitive answer on that? No, (laughs) I think it might be one of those mysteries that we, we never solve. The current theory is two rare conditions that they thought I might have. So one of them was cardiac sarcoidosis mm-hmm. and the other was mitochondrial disease of the heart. And after doing some tests on my old heart, um, they found sarcoidosis in the heart. So mm-hmm. I think we're not sure if I had both, if I had one and then developed another. And it's one of those things that I might never find out, but I think I've come to accept that and think I can move on from from not knowing. Yeah. And just lastly, um, I wanted to ask if there's anybody listening who might be going through a similar experience to you or might be waiting for a heart transplant, just received one. Do you have like any words of wisdom for them or a message for them? You sometimes feel quite lonely in the journey because it's such an uncommon thing to go through. Mm. So I think talking to friends and family is really important. Um, Telling them your worries um, can help get it off your chest and make it feel less intense. And I think being patient with the recovery is Mm -hmm. something that took a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. I thought once I got the new heart, everything would be fine and I would go back to normal. But actually... There are lots of changes that happen to your body after transplant, which sometimes you're not quite prepared for. Mm -hmm. And it's just learning to listen to your body, um, letting it have a break when it wants a break. And also acknowledging that it's a big thing to go through. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some days you're going to mentally and physically struggle and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But life post-transplant is on the whole amazing Mm -hmm. Um, for me recovery has been a long process um but it's been amazing as well just to be able to do some of the things that I craved for so long like mm-hmm. exercising like hiking and not thinking about everything that I do and trying to plan my life around the symptoms that I was having mm-hmm. um so I think although it can be tough at times it's definitely worth it yeah and Again, thanks to my donor, I've been given this extra time that I didn't think I would have. Um, so I hope that by sharing my story, it can plant seeds of hope in other people. Um, yeah. That, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel, that although it feels like the pain and the suffering is going to be never ending, it does actually get better. And on the other side, it is, it is worth it in the end. Yeah. Oh, well, wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing I mean it's a remarkable journey that you've been on and I think if your if your goal was to help others facing uh similar challenges then I think you've definitely done that by you know sharing your story so openly and honestly with us today so thank you so much thank you for having me If you have any questions or concerns about your heart or circulatory health and would like to speak with a cardiac nurse on the BHF's Heart Helpline, just go to our website at bhf.org.uk slash heart helpline where you'll find all the contact options. 
You'll also find useful information on our vital research, both in the episode notes and on our website at bhf.org.uk. The ticker tapes are for the many people out there living with heart conditions, and it's for them, their friends, their family, that we produce this podcast. Meanwhile, if you'd like to tell your own heart story or have thoughts on this episode, do get in touch with us by emailing theTickerTapes at bhf.org.uk. See you next time on The Ticker Tapes.